We're privileged to have today, along with the Great Lakes Christian students, the president of Great Lakes Christian College, Don Rose. Don and I have uh, gotten to know each other over the last few years at Pepperdine University's Bible Lectures every year. He's been going down, and we, I see him there, and we spend time together. We've had uh, countless tacos and enchiladas together, uh, fish tacos in some cases, if you can imagine that. And so Don's going to come and bless us today with a lesson from Hebrews. And Don, before you speak, if you come over here, I'd love to pray for you. Absolutely. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to thank you so much for Don and his ministry, for the way that he serves at Great Lakes. I'm grateful, God, also for the way that he proclaims your word. And I pray that you'd watch over him as he speaks to us now for a few moments. It's through Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Bless you. Well, good morning. It is good to be with you this morning. So I'm going to check here. Oh, there we go. Right? We're good. All right. Well, I'll say it again. Good morning. It is good to be with you this morning. I had a chance to visit here about eight years ago. So for good or for worse, some people have said you should share this. Some people said you shouldn't. I went to school with Becky Hammond. So uh, she's a very good friend of mine, and, uh, and, and we visited her a few years ago and had the opportunity to stay in the Coglins home, and uh, it's been too long. And I know that I was encouraged when I was here for worship that time, and I'm so happy to not just be here myself, but to bring these young people. I have one of those rare opportunities to travel throughout our fellowship on a regular basis, and I want you to know what a rich blessing it is to see that there are faithful people scattered throughout the world, because sometimes it is easy for us to feel like we're all alone. And so your faith is an encouragement. And I just pray that by being given the opportunity for which we thank you to be here this morning, that something we do can strengthen you in that faith and be an encouragement to you. I want to take a look at a text in in Hebrews chapter 10. Before we do, I I want to read uh, some lyrics from a song for you. They go like this. If they shut down the churches, where would you go? And if they melted all the stained glass windows and replaced every sanctuary with a condo, where would you go? If they burned every Bible, what would you know? If they tore your marked up pages, how would you grow? If they declared your devotion to be criminal, what would you know? When they throw you in prison, what will you do? When they hate you for the things that you know are true, what will you do? Well, these verses are rhetorical questions to an American, a Canadian, North American audience composed by Christian songwriters named Jason Germain and Mark Martell. The sad reality is that for some people in the world, they're not rhetorical questions at all. And certainly for the Hebrews who received the letter in our New Testament, these are not rhetorical questions. They are really struggling. I mean, they've been introduced to and understand and have accepted Christ. Except there's a lot of pressure. Why? Persecution. One. Two, a lot of competing and compelling human philosophies that are gaining much traction and influence, competing for these ideas about this man named Christ. But perhaps the greatest pull for those Hebrew early converts was the fact that after they've been introduced, the pressure from families, other people, to revert back to their old traditions. You put all of those together, and all of the faith that they have built is threatened. And so the whole Hebrew letter is talking to them to try and help them understand what they have and to encourage them to keep it. And in many ways, that describes us. Praise God, we live in a country where we're not persecuted for our faith. 
But there are just a few competing, compelling philosophies, aren't there? There are just a few pressures from our culture, our society, even our families that cause us to question whether this thing that we're holding on to, this belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and our Savior, to question it. And we've all been in those places. So we're going to land today in Hebrews chapter 10. But before we do, uh, at verse 19, it begins with therefore. Whenever you begin with a therefore, something had to come before it, right? And a whole bunch of stuff came before it. And we don't have time this morning to go through the whole book of Hebrews. So I'm going to purposely oversimplify. In the first nine chapters of Hebrews, there is a question. And this question is, do we need to be saved? The answer is yes. Because we are all with sin. We need to be saved. And what is the response to that. And the response is that there is a way to be saved, a perfect, all-atoning, and completely sufficient sacrifice who is our eternal priest. In short, we have a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ. And so then what must we do? We need to have faith, and as important as having faith, we need to keep faith, and that's where we are. We're here where he has tried to lay out who Jesus is to reassure these early believers of his identity, that he is who he claims to be. But they're being challenged. So how do we continue to cling? How do we continue to serve? How do we continue to live this out? And here's something that's really important for us to understand. You see, Jesus is more than our Savior. He's more than our High Priest. He's more than our Lord. He's our pattern. He's our example. He is our model. You see, we understand that Jesus is the only way to God, but the way that Jesus lived his life was to model for us how we should live for God. And the book of Hebrews up to this point has really been about establishing doctrine, a set of beliefs to help us understand who Jesus is and what that means for us. But beginning here in chapter 10, the Hebrew writer says, I want to give you some practical advice on how you can deepen, strengthen, and persevere in your faith. So pay attention. And we start with this, an exhortation. We'll come back to exhortation in a moment. This is Hebrews chapter 10, starting verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most highly place, he's tried to establish that. We have confidence to enter the most highly place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with a full assurance of faith and what that brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. This is an exhortation. It's a very churchy word. Not many people use it today. It's sad that our society would look at exhort, have no idea what you're saying, but understand the word extort. Change one letter, T from H. And it is a sad thing. Because our culture in our society says if you want someone to do something, you need to force them to do it. And extorting is using something over someone to control them. Praise God that's not the God we serve. He exhorts us. He strongly encourages us. 
He gives us a message of hope, but he says you can choose to accept it or you can reject it. He doesn't force us into it. And so the Hebrew writer is reminding us. He's trying to encourage us. Look at all this stuff that you've come to accept about Jesus Christ. Don't forget it. You should be encouraged. But what do you do with that? What do you do with that? The focus here is not about whether or not we have faith, but in having it, how do we respond to it? And the very first thing he says, if you want your faith to endure, if you want to stand firm, you need to draw near to God. And we all have a quick response to that. We say, well, how do we draw near to God? We can pray more. We can read the Bible more. These are practical things. But some of the things that are listed here are interesting to me because I don't think we think of them as ways of coming close to him. The very first thing he says is, if you want to draw near God, he, he makes a statement about having a sincere heart. I come from a family of, of smokers. I grew up in a smoking household. Actually, my, my grandparents, my grandfather died of emphysema as a lifelong smoker. So that, that was a strong influence. I, I still don't know how I got out without doing it. I don't know how. But I share this, not as a statement of judgment, but as an example. Eight years ago, my father suffered a heart attack, and he survived. And he said, I mean, he was kind of trying to make light of a very serious situation. And he said, hey, having a heart attack was the most effective quit smoking program I could have enrolled in. He hasn't smoked his cigarette since then. Uh, my mother continues to smoke. And of course, her children are always encouraging her to stop. And, and I don't stand in judgment because I'm addicted to caffeine. So I have a problem and I got to deal with that. But here's the problem. I can't stop drinking coffee and my mother cannot stop smoking until what? In her heart, she wants to. Until she wants to, it's not going to happen. And here's the idea. You can't draw near to God unless you really want to. Unless you really want to. You can ignore everything else that gets said here because if you don't have that desire in your heart, it's going to be impossible. And so we start with saying in your inner being, do you really want to? Examine that. Because if you do, then we've got something to work with. Continuing. You need to have a full assurance of faith. This is one that we struggle with because it's easy to say, but it's hard to live. This whole idea of, do you truly depend on God? We always talk about surrendering our anxieties, our guilt, our shame, our fears to him, but very few of us are good at doing it, aren't we? And the whole idea here is, is do we truly believe that God is faithful? And if he is, then can we completely surrender to him? Because if we're going to draw near to God, we have to do it. We have to have this full assurance that he keeps his promises and therefore we trust him. You know that. You cannot draw near to someone you do not trust. How much do you trust him? And if you trust him, you can draw near to him. The last two things that he identifies here. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. There's a definite tie-in to the Hebrew practices, especially in the Old Testament, of all these ceremonial cleansings to clean them and cleanse them. But there's an idea here of being sprinkled with something else, sanctified by blood of a sacrifice. And the sacrifice that we've been sanctified by is the all-atoning and perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is something so many of us struggle with. Here's the idea. All of us have done things. I've done things I regret and you know what happens? Every time I enter a moment of weakness in my life, what specter rears its ugly head? What I did before. And the guilt comes back, and Satan uses that to pull us backwards. Stepping back a, a, a moment, 
If we have full assurance in our faith, if we believe that God says what he says, when I confess that and laid it at his feet, God's forgiven me. Why do I keep dragging those things back myself that limit me from drawing close to him? Again, surrender to him and have the confidence that if he is forgiving you, that you can be free from your guilt. And this whole idea of being washed with pure water, there is a deliberate reference here to baptism. We who are impure and sinful are cleansed of sin through the sacrificial death and resurrection of Christ. We share through this act of baptism, death, burial, resurrection, Romans 6, 4 through 10. And so we understand that if we join him, that we are able to come into his presence. And then we continue then. Not only should we draw near to God, we should hold unswervingly to our hope. So I was saying earlier, now my, my, my wife is at home with two of our children. One of my sons is uh, here with us at the chorus. And I was saying earlier this morning, because they're two hours ahead of us, so they're in the afternoon. I know this morning that my eight-year-old son, knowing that dad was gone, knowing his older brother was gone, was hoping for something all through church. And his hope was that mom was going to take him out to McDonald's when church was done. I know it was. I know what an eight-year-old's thinking of. Every time I'm gone, you know, it's like, all right, it's time to go out and have some fun. Now, here's the idea. That kind of hope is for something that may or may not happen. And we have all kinds of hopes like that in our life. We hope that, but it might and it might not. That is not the hope in the New Testament. That is not the hope that is described here. Will Jesus come back? Maybe. No, it's not maybe. He will come back. It is an anticipated expectation. It is something that we are sure of, and that's why I have hope to live today. Because Jesus is not a dead hope, but a living hope, and he gives me hope to live. That's the idea that's presented here. Hold unswervingly to that. Swerving is turning aside. Don't turn aside. Bear down, go straight, cling to unswervingly, the hope that God has given you. One of the reasons that we have difficulty staying firm in our faith is this whole idea that we lose sight of our hope. And this is, this is an assurance, not something that may or may not happen. And then it does three things. You know, it's interesting when we look at the Ten Commandments, how they start with our relationship with God, the first few, and all the rest of them talk about our relationship with who? Each other. Other people. And that's exactly what the Hebrew writer does here. And he begins by saying, after these ideas of, of drawing near to God, this idea of holding unswervingly to our hope, to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Sometimes we think of spur. We think of the cowboys and those painful things in the back of the horse, right? That's, that's not what is meant here. When this was written, the idea is, again, how do we encourage someone for a purpose. How do we encourage someone to love and to do good deeds? Do we do that as a body? The most amazing thing is, is not only does that build us up as a body, it draws us nearer to God. When we encourage one another to do good deeds and grow in love. And then it says, do not give up meeting together. Some are in the habit of doing be very careful with this line because we often pull it out and we use it as a club for people who don't show up for some regularly scheduled worship service or Bible study or whatever else. And I want to ask a question. When we use it that way, does it fit with the rest of this passage? So 
spur one another on to love and good deeds, and then after it, let us encourage one another. And in between it says, let us not be in the habit of not meeting with one another. So should we use that as a club? Is that encouraging? Does that spur them? No, neither. It shouldn't be used that way. But it does underline a very important principle that we can't miss. How often did the disciples meet? Daily. Every day. It is a true principle that the people with whom you spend the most time will have the most influence on your life. It just makes sense. So if I believe in Christ, but I spend all of my time, in the Hebrew case, with the people who are still living in accordance to the old covenant, who's going to have the bigger influence on the other in our lives it's who we associate with every time we walk out these doors it's not to say you shouldn't have associations with people who don't share what you believe that's not what this says but what it says is is if you want to stand firm in your faith in a different context you better be meeting with one another people who share a belief who come together strengthen one another in that belief and it concludes Let us encourage one another. We are called to be a people who lift each other up and not tear each other down. Do not let any unwholesome talk out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. When we encourage one another, when we meet together with one another, when we spur each other on to love and good deeds, we draw closer to God. So this is the encouragement part. It gets pretty dark after this. He does what a good teacher does. I was an English teacher for nine years, high school. So every time I gave back one of those essays, first of all, I didn't mention this earlier, I use a green pen. Why? Because the red pen just is angry. And people see the red pen all over it, and then they just, you know, they get all upset. So you use the green pen. I'm an arts person, you know, calms them down. And then I write, your strengths are, and then I tell them all the things that they need to fix. (laughs) Well, that's what the writer is doing here. He says, you've got so much. But if you ignore what you have... There are dire consequences. We continue in verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the full knowledge of the truth. I added that word. We'll come back to that. The knowledge of the truth. No sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation. Earlier we had a hopeful expectation. Here is a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? who is treated as an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I want to highlight two things that are said at the very beginning of this passage. Because when I read this passage, it does give me that ice pick feeling in, in the center Is this me? Are you talking about me? The very first thing that is said is for those who deliberately keep on sinning. That's very different than for those who stumble, for those who struggle, for those who make mistakes. Because that last group describes almost all of us. But what's the difference? Well, let me give you an illustration. A few years ago, I had an opportunity to go to a fundraising banquet in Phoenix, Arizona. I took my family with me. And just north of Phoenix, we visited a place called Slide State or Slide Rock State Park. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It was in April. 
So there's ice melt, water coming down the river. You have to walk all the way up this river, and the water over time has carved this channel right down the center of the river that's this great big long chute. It's a naturally occurring water slide. And so, I mean, we, well, my son Micah and I, we absolutely had to do this. At that time, he was 10. My daughter was 8. My youngest boy was 5. So we're coming, and we had to cross the river a couple times in order to get to the place. And every time you stepped in the water, it was like needles in your ankles. It was so cold. And the whole time, my wife is going, I don't know if this is a good idea. I don't know if this is a good idea. Anyway, so God bless her. We walked all the way up to the place, and there were only a handful of people because it was early in the season. Most people do this in the summertime. So she's over on the bank clinging to her three-year-old because she doesn't want him anywhere near the water. And, and I go and I slide down because, you know, in my mind, it's like, I'm never going to get this chance again. You know, I'm only in the water a few minutes. Hopefully I won't die from hypothermia, which is what my wife thought my children were going to die from. But anyway, I did it. I was okay. I came out unscathed. So then my son did it. He was great. He had a good time. And I was at the bottom, you know, and helped him out. Well, my daughter, there was a little pool at the top. You had to, you had to step through the pool which was shallow, a couple feet. And then you had to step over the lip of it, and that's where the main current of the river was. And then you would slide down. So I'm at the bottom, loving, safe, protecting father with the video camera going, come on, honey, jump in. My wife is at the side going, you don't have to do this. You don't have to do this. And my daughter, you can see her. She's shivering. She's standing there. And of course, the longer she's standing there, the worse it gets, right? So I'm trying to encourage, and, and then she's beckoning back. And she decided she couldn't do it. She just couldn't do it. So she goes to turn, and if you know anything about shallow pools in water, the bottom is very slippery. One of her feet, straight up, she went down hard, right into the current, swept away. So I was like, yay, this is great on video. My my wife is going, save her, she's going to drown. And she wasn't really enjoying the trip. I reached in, I pulled her out, she was okay. And afterwards, she laughed about it. She thought, well, that was kind of fun. It didn't look like it when it happened. But here's my point. It's a funny story. But too often we live our lives standing in that pool. Every time we backslide, every time that we find ourselves in places where we're beginning to make mistakes, we're standing in that pool and we're trying to decide which way am I going to go. And it's a dangerous place to be. You still have an opportunity to step back. So many times in my life, praise God, I had an opportunity to step back after I'd made another mistake. But sometimes if we're not careful, our feet go out from under us and the current takes us far away from the Father. We have to be so careful. And what's being talked about in this passage, though, is not about the people who are struggling. You know what? Doubt is scary. But the wonderful thing about doubt is, is if you're doubting, you're struggling. The struggle means there's still something there, right? It's not our enemy necessarily. We treat it that way sometimes. The enemy is when we decide to reject what we've held and throw it away. The people who step over and throw themselves in the river and get swept far away, that's what we're talking about here. Those who keep on deliberately sinning, those who completely reject. The word apostasy that we throw around is a complete and utter rejection. We have to be very careful because we could be there sooner than we think. The second thing I want to highlight is this idea of who we're talking to. After we have received the knowledge of the truth is what most translations translate this as. But the Greek word for knowledge here is very strong. Those who have received the full knowledge. Again, this whole letter was not written to people who didn't yet believe. It was written to people who believed but were being challenged and some who said they believed and rejected that belief. 
And so we have to be very careful because this is talking about those of us who it would have been better never to have believed than to have believed and then rejected Christ. But we don't end there. Praise God he doesn't end there. He wants us to know the dire consequences of rejecting that which we've held on to so far. But what's the value of continuing to hold on to our faith? This is the last part of the passage. An appeal. Verse 32. Remember, remember those earlier days when you first received the light. I think we all know that. Those of us who have decided to follow Christ, how energetic, how excited we were, and how difficult it is over time and through life's trials to maintain it. But remember that when you received the light, when you endured in great conflict full of suffering. Remember sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution and at other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison. And I love this part. And joyfully, joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. We have that expectancy, that hope, we have better and lasting possessions. And I'm going to add a word here, so do not throw away your confidence now. After everything that's brought us this far, don't throw it away now. Look at those past victories. Look at what God has done. Remind yourself of what you have discovered. And do it on a continual... It's one of the reasons I believe that God has caused us to remember his son in the way that we do in communion. We need to be reminded continually of the victory that we have in Christ so that we can hold unswervingly to our hope and have confidence in our faith. So as we think about that, we see here an encouragement for patience. In fact, the passage here that's being quoted is from Habakkuk. And in the passage, Habakkuk is saying this as he's contrasting the king of Babylon to the people of Israel. And what he's saying to the people of Israel, again, is be patient and wait. And I want to contrast something here. Even he contrasts it. You know, he's contrasting this whole idea of us needing to persevere and not step away. Last few verses. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while... He who is coming will come and not delay, and by my, but my righteous one will live by faith. I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back, but we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. I love that passage. We do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. And these words from Habakkuk remind us that for those who shrink back, for those who step away, for those who lose confidence, for those who walk away from faith, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the mighty God. But what about for those who remain faithful and persevere? Contrast this. 2 Samuel 24, 14, David says, I am in deep distress. I want, let us fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is great. Do not let me fall into the hands of men. You see that? For the believer, the best place to be is in the hands of God. And for the rejecter, it's the worst place. One last little story. In 1830, there was a man named George Wilson, and he was convicted of robbing the U.S. uh, mail service, and he was sentenced to be hanged. But the president at the time, Andrew Jackson, issued a pardon. But much to his surprise... 
Wilson rejected the pardon. And the president didn't know what to do. I mean, if you've been given a presidential pardon, what do you do? So it was referred to the chief justice. Marshall was his name. And he reviewed the case and he said he would have to be executed. This is what he wrote. Chief Justice Marshall. A pardon is a slip of paper, the value of which is determined by the acceptance of the person to be pardoned. If it is refused, there is no pardon. Wilson must be hanged. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came to fulfill a plan that God had from the beginning of time. He issued us a pardon. In this case, not a presidential pardon, but the creator of the universe issued a pardon. Do we accept it or do we reject it? Do we fall back and be destroyed? Or do we believe and be saved? Will we have the patience and the perseverance to endure? You know, there are some questions that are being asked in this passage. Are we living near to God? In response to that, this passage says we have confidence to enter into God's throne throne room. Are we holding fast to the confidence that we have in our faith? And we can see that God gives us this warning against those who would walk away from faith. Are we guarding our souls against deliberate sins? And we need to be reminded of our spiritual victories because through him, we are victorious. Are we showing to the world that we are those who have faith to the persevering of our souls? You know, when I opened at the beginning, I gave you some rhetorical questions. And there were questions about our faith being challenged. What I didn't read for you was the chorus of the song that those songwriters wrote, which I think encapsulates the message today. This is what they said. They can tear down this temple, but they can't touch you. Because we are a cathedral made of people in a kingdom that the eyes cannot see. We are a house. We are the bride where God's spirit lives inside. And nothing, nothing can ever stand against her. Let's pray. Almighty God and Father, we thank you so much that we can have a living hope in your son, Jesus Christ. And no matter where we are today in our faith journey, I pray that we can be encouraged to be patient and to persevere. Help us to remind each other of the victories that we have in you. Help us, dear God, to cling to what you have shared with us so that we can not only stand firm in our own faith, but that we can proclaim it to the community and the world around us. Father, help us to be brave. Help us to be the ones who do not shrink back. Help us to be strong. And Father, may we do all of that to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.